Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll. That's why they took vodka over there. <laughs> You're better off spraying the vodka on those last words. <laughs> <laughs> Drought is no fun to endure. It, it's Devil's right hand. <laughs> it, you, oh, no. That's beer. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour, and we have part two of the PPE episode. So uh, what did that stand for again? PPE. It was the... What the hell was it? The podcast... Pesticide just, podcast experience. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah that's like, yep. <laughs> so like we have Jimi the Jimi Hendrix experience. Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you'll want to just tune into the rest of this. This is uh, if, if you really enjoyed the last conversation, Andrew Thosson, Larry Schulz, they really covered. Uh, you could just tell there's so much passion and so much uh, career they've both had in this whole pesticide safety realm. And the stories they share and the knowledge they share. And it only continues in this. And it actually starts with a pretty big story that is very current event right now about seed treatments and ethanol production and the misuse of a treated seed or the, the misdisposal, I guess you want to call it, of treated seed. Yeah. It's a good story, but then uh, it kind of spins off into a lot of other good topics. It's just, it was too good not to share. So... We hope you guys enjoy that, but before we, we get to that part, as always, let's hear a word from our friends Farm QA. Are you a consultant that's looking for a better way to organize your day? Or your life? Are you a farmer that's looking for a way to keep better field records? Or get your hired help to the right fields? Gosh, that would be important. You know, Jason, there's a tool that's called Farm QA that could do a really good job of that. Kyle, they build digital tools for agronomy. That's what I hear. But don't take our word for it. CropLife has listed FarmQA as a top agricultural tool for the last two years. And they're based right here in Fargo, North Dakota. And you can find them on FarmQA.com, FarmQA on Twitter. And who do we always say to find out for more information? That'd be our good friend Ben Munson. He will hook you up. Check him out. guys enjoy part two of pesticide podcast experience andrew would you permit me to provide a little bit of an update about yeah, the sure. ethanol facility north yeah Lincoln? this is a great topic Larry. oh yes please uh, it's the the company is called alt n which is spelled a-l-t-e-n and so i think it may be referring to alternative environment I mean, that's what it turned out to be but this was a facility that um, got a permit in 2012 to receive uh, treated uh, excess seed corn from all, from practically all of the North American continent to Mead, Nebraska, just north of Lincoln, 30, 35 miles. Um, at the same time, they, they got a permit to s- store that treated seed there and then use it as a raw ingredient to produce ethanol. Hmm. And the same owner of the ethanol plant had a very large cattle feeding operation, and he sold the distiller's grains, the mash, um, or used the distiller's grain and mash for livestock feed right there. So it was kind of a a complete um, um, full-circle process. Well, the problem actually resulted in the fact that uh, there was an accumulation of the treated seed that was coming from six different companies, um, AgriLiant, Beck Super Hybrids, Winfield Solutions, Sagenta, and uh, Bayer. And practically all of their excess seed corn came to that one location uh, in the North American continent, not just the U.S. Um, they ran afoul of problems because they started to, uh, there is a, pile of treated seed corn, uh, distiller's mash, I should say, that is about 84,000 tons worth. And and wow. and uh, now they happen to have um, a large 
lagoon containing, I think it was 4 million gallons that leaked and uh, it contained byproducts of the ethanol production uh, plant and the distiller's grains. And so there was a groundwater contamination problem here. And uh, Andrew and I have had some conversations about this. The, The use of this treated seed is not necessarily handled by EPA and their pesticide labels. And it's also not handled by the Department of Environmental Quality or, and uh, the equivalent in state ag departments either. And so what's the regulatory authority here? Because the, 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 the pesticides have been sold and applied to seeds and farmers have used them. But this is, ex, this is ex, uh, extra, extra uh, seed corn and it comes back to be processed for ethanol. And now you've got byproducts out of this, and uh, the company was forced to close down uh, last year in 2000, early 2021. And a, a week later, the leak uh, from this large uh, holding tank came about, and um, it's been a major problem. And I anticipate it will be a, eventually a Superfund site to get this cleaned up. Yesterday in the news was that... Um, the seed companies, those six seed companies, have sued Alt-N, its owner, and its production manager because the seed companies said that we gave our seeds to you to process and handle as per state, federal, and environmental guidelines, and you have not done so. So the seed companies now are suing the owner of that ethanol and ethanol plant and the cattle uh, feedlot uh, process. How about that? Oh, Larry, that is so rich because, <laughs> okay, so let's just imagine that you have this, this seed corn that's been treated. You can't untreat seed corn, okay? So, like, when it's treated, you can't untreat it. So, at that point, you have a couple of choices. One, you could put it in a landfill. That costs money. Two, you can plant it out in the field, and nobody wants to plant it out in the field because it's too much hassle and you waste land, right? Or you could select door number three, send it down to this ethanol plant, and they will turn it into ethanol and, in theory, dispose of this stuff in an appropriate way so you don't have to worry about all the insecticides and fungicides that are on that. And it's like, out of sight, out of mind. Send a couple of semi truck loads of this stuff down there, and you do that for three or four years until you have thousands and thousands and thousands of tons down there of this glop. It's like it's unbelievable how much of this concentrated distillers mashes down there. And so this is a perfect example. This is a thing that drives Larry crazy and it drives me crazy. It should drive you two crazy. It is a public relations nightmare for anybody who wants to use pesticides response. Right, right. That information gets in, gets up in yeah. the morning. Jason gets up in the morning. You guys don't want to ruin the world. You don't, you know, all you're trying to do is make a living and you have this unmitigated disaster out there. And honestly, Larry and I go back and forth on the emails and I get so furious with him. He's probably upset with me because I spout off on this stuff, but <laughs> it it's like we're in the pesticide game. We want people to use pesticides properly. If they use it properly, everybody's happy. And then we have this disaster going on. And you mentioned some big names there, Larry. Those were not chump change companies. No, and that's that represents a big volume of corn seed too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, almost all of the excess seed corn in the United States and and uh, Canada. Uh, five o'clock this afternoon was a new lawsuit that was filed, and it came from um, a down home couple near Mead, Nebraska who bought a house and built his dream house um, half a mile away, had a child, and then a couple later, a couple years later had a second child, and now their children are having respiratory problems, and, uh, and they have got up and left their dream home that he's been working on. It was a 10-year project, and he's only into it five years, 
and th they have left that property and bought a house uh, in at Bellevue, Nebraska, which is at the south edge of Omaha. And uh, because they are saying, for the health of my kids and ourselves, we will not live within a half mile of that planting lot. And he said, well, interesting. And, and and the reality is, is there's no true regulatory process for exactly how they're handling yes. that. And, yeah. and so it's a great uh, out for those. How does that, how does that slip through? So think, about, think, think about it this way. The EPA has the pesticide label, which is a federal label. You're required to follow it, but it is on how to use those seed treatment products. And once they're applied to that uh, seed, and then the seed uh, as treated is planted into the ground, that's where EPA stops its authority. And the State Department of Education, State Department of Energy and Environment should pick it up from that point in in, in, in relation to protection of the environment. And they think that in the state of Nebraska because they did issue the permit to have the facility work and they saw some problems. That the uh, State Department of Energy and Environment did issue uh, warnings and complaints, but the company Alt N failed to respond to their uh, to the charges as laid upon them by the Department of Environment and Education. So we have kind of an interesting similar problem happening in North Dakota right now. <laughs> so we have sugar beets and sugar beets. Some of that seed can be treated with clopyrifos. Oh. Clopyrifos is really good on maggots. And we have a problem with sugar beet maggots in the North Valley. Mm -hmm. And so we have sugar beet seed that is treated for maggots. So we have a situation out there where this seed was treated legally before the Colpyrophos revocation. And the revocation starts on the 28th of February. So mind you, that hasn't started yet. We're still and, three, and four days. And you are a farmer, <laughs> a sugar beet grower, or a seed company, and you have all this treated seed that was treated legally, Okay. It was treated before the 28th, and yet planting season is a month and a half away. And what do you do? So you call up NDSU, you call up the Department of Agriculture, they scratch their head, they ask questions of FDA and EPA, and you can't get a good answer for any of them. And this is a perfect example of these regulatory gaps that occur that People get put in impossible situations. They're trying to do the right thing, but they can't do the right thing because the geniuses in the bureaucracies <laughs> don't know how to handle it, right, Larry? Just like the yeah. sing down in Mead, right? I mean, they're, yeah. that's you know, not our deal, right? One of the first clues that something was happening, and it should have been at Mead with the ethanol plant, that there was an entomologist from UNL, um, and she was doing some research work up in adjoining uh, University of Nebraska Field Research Laboratory. And she is, as an entomologist, she discovered in her um, collection of beehives that she was getting unexplained dieback yeah. of her bee populations. And she began to eventually uh, tie in the, the uh, uh, treated seed at this facility is where her bees were foraging and coming in contact uh, with the seed treatment uh, pesticide. So interestingly, this woman, uh, a research entomologist, her name is Judy Wu Smart. Yes. And she's just, you know, she's just like an A1, M1. There's nothing remarkable. She's just an entomologist. She's like got these bees and and she's doing these different foraging studies and are like, bees are just dying. She's like, what? I didn't do anything. And then she starts digging in and looking at this stuff and she's like, oh my God, some of the, the uh, residues on my bees are just off the charts. How does this happen? And, and you know, this is the interesting thing is this, this Judy Wu Smart is just a extraordinarily gifted entomologist and she's like totally blown away she doesn't understand what's going on she'd never seen anything like this before and and then all of a sudden she's like 
in the middle of this disaster and the lawsuits and the environmental people and the consumer advocates and the homeowners and the and the lawyers, she's just an ordinary entomologist. And before you know it, she's in the middle of a hurricane. And I've never met her, Larry. I hope you've had an occasion. I have met her uh, uh protege, the, the person who's now the PSEP coordinator at Nebraska, had worked Jennifer. for Judy. Jennifer. And I'm like going, holy cow, you know, I feel terrible because these people were just, all they're just like normal. When I say they're normal, they weren't, they weren't looking to, to like uncover this disaster and they got sucked right into it. And this was all because of her beehives direct exposure to a seed treating facility or because well, it, was a, it was a treated the the treated mash okay so so you had all this corn that that they made ethanol out of and then they mm-hmm. got the mash afterwards yep and the mash have high concentrations of this insecticide and fungicide in it the rain comes down leaches through the pile it gets into the groundwater so this still stems back to the same nebraska ethanol plant stores okay suck it all up they flower the nectar the pollen is all contaminated with the stuff and her bees die remember there's eight four thousand ton of treated seed uh uh, that that are on the grounds it's just it's just like it was like 30 acres of this stuff, Larry, that was like 10 or 15 feet deep. So it, so it scares me about this. Is this, is, this is a high concentration, but people are going to take some of this out of context and run with it and just demonize how this is getting used in regular agriculture. And this is a very special use scenario with, unfortunately, some very gray area as far as how they should be handling it. Yeah. I just went back to the news article here. It's it says that the 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 six companies say that uh, that they point to Alt N's lack of plans on how to dispose of the wet cake um, and the clear defiance by the company in stockpiling an estimated eighty four thousand tons of the solid byproduct at the facility, and and that's it's that's the treated that's that's the mash that's the distilled grain that's that's not raw. Um, seed that is just treated and yet to be processed in the ethanol. This is strictly the mash. Well, right, and and I and I get maybe uh, these seed companies are just covering themselves. I guess on this, as far as they're concerned, it was their responsibility to figure out at this ethanol company at Alten to figure out you know what to actually do with this, right? Yeah, I I I run hot and cold on it. Sometimes I get really mad and I send a note off to Larry and I just said, you know, these chemical companies or these seed companies, you know, they're, you know, they didn't do their due diligence. On the other hand, you know, they probably got sold a really good bill of goods and it was like, well, we're going to take care of it for you. Um, Well, it turns out that these six seed companies now are attempting to wash their hands of the problem to some degree. Uh, because, as as it said here in this article, the, the former suppliers to Alt-N, well, that's the seed companies, said the facility's failure to properly handle, manage, and store the discarded seed, as well as the waste products it produced, broke state and federal laws that permits it obtained from the state, as well as agreements they signed with Alt-N. These six companies signed agreements that Alt-N would properly handle the seed. It was not done. Hmm. Yeah, so I know one of the take-home messages is that, yeah. you know, we work, you know, in agriculture and in the work that you, you all do and the farmers and the, and the chemical companies, we all see the value and the uh, potential for dealing with the diseases or the insects or the weeds or whatever. And and we're, we're always trying to figure out how to to get that control or to control that weed or, or do whatever we need to do so that that farmer can raise an acceptable crop and be able to provide for his or her family. And yet, you know, if we just go outside of the boundaries a little bit, or we push the, if we push the limits of what we think is okay, maybe we, maybe it is okay. Like these seed companies, maybe, 
maybe what they did was okay. They thought that somebody was taking care of this stuff. They weren't. But but that's how close it is. You have a extraordinarily powerful chemistries that have the capacities to do very excellent things if everything is just so. And then you have something that just comes out of the blue. And I, ten years ago, I try to give the benefit of the doubt to those people. You know, when it when it's something that just you couldn't have foreseen those problems, but but some of it is you should have known better. I think I don't know, Larry. How was excess seed corn, treated seed corn, handled before this facility came into being? Well, in theory, in theory, Larry, it was either put into a landfill. And that was an acceptable disposable system, or it was planted out. It was planted out in the field and plowed down, or you know whatever. Um, you know, I have pictures of of farmers going out there and dumping this stuff out in the pasture. You know, to like get rid of it. I mean, that was like twenty five years ago. But I think most people either put it in a landfill or they they did at least plant it out for a green crop or whatever, then plant it down. I don't think the law firm of Thostenson, Schultz, Oakey, or Hansen wants to take this case on. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I will say, though, we treat seed far more than we ever used to. We yes. treat corn and soybeans in particular on a scale that we never did 10 years ago. And so this amount of treated seed is far greater than anything we saw in the olden days. And, and I know that this is true because if you look at the number of applicators that are certified in the seed treatment category, the baseline from, say, 2000 to 2010 was about 300 applicators in the state of North Dakota were certified in seed treatment. Now we're up to about 800. Mm. So that means that we're using a lot more of this stuff than we ever used to. When you use more of it, you got to deal with more issues. But look in the look in the future. I mean, biopesticides and where that's probably going to go. Uh, there's just a lot more different things that are going to be that might not have. They have different actives, um, not necessarily chemical compounds, but they're. There might be bacteria or they might be, in, but they might be in combination with fungicides or insecticides as well. And that's, I mean, the kind of the, the future egg is there's a, there's a lot of biological product things that are coming to the market. And, and uh, that totally misses the regulatory, right? It, it gets classified as something different? Well, yes and no, Kyle, but um, okay, so you open this door talking about biologics and, and some of these how should I call it? They're not what we would consider to be real pesticides. They're they're a biological entity or a bacteria or something like that. Mm-hmm. EPA has specifically made it a a policy to judge them at a lower risk level than what they would do with a conventional pesticide. So they have a lower safety bar to get over. And so getting one of those approved is not as difficult as getting that next molecule to take out water, hemp, or palmer, or kosher. kosher. And so, so the interesting thing is, 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 you know, I hang out with a lot of the weed scientists at NDSU, and I happen to think really highly of their intellect. And they, they just basically... Yeah, you know, we were having a con- uh, a conversation about m- metabolic resistance uh, against herbicides, and they were just like going, "In ten years, we're going to have to control weeds in ways that we can't even imagine today, with tools that we can't imagine. Gen- maybe genetic tools. Maybe we're gonna maybe we're gonna spray pollen across these fields with with uh, some sort of sterility gene." to treat water hemp or palmer plants with a, a certain genetically defective pollen that will prevent that stuff from reproducing. I mean, it sounds like Buck Roger, but we're running out of bullets in the pesticide realm, man. We, we're not getting them. 
we have to come up with something else totally weird, totally wild. Uh, it's already being done in Florida with mosquitoes. Yes. yes. Releasing, what is it? Is it sterile male, male mosquitoes? And they mate with the females. And mm-hmm. as a result yeah. of that, uh, there's, there's no reproduction, hopefully, to control the population of mosquitoes. It just absolutely crashes the mosquitoes. There's two different ways of achieving that. One is a a natural. They actually introduce a parasite into the the mosquito, and the mosquito produces a defective uh, sperm. Uh, And then they can take that sperm and then, uh, or that that mosquito that's generated from, from that defective sperm and introduce that into the environment. Or they can use radiation to knock out these males so that they're all sterile. There seems to be a great debate about the way that you sterilize that that sperm, but the effect is the same. The mosquito populations crash because there's you know they can't reproduce. And that was, wasn't that the Zika virus that was a concern with? Well, actually, it started with uh, 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 yellow fever and. Yeah. Uh, I mean, malaria is malaria is the just, big one that mosquitoes yeah. carry, right? Yeah, um, biggest killer still on the planet is malaria. Yeah, but uh, Zika, Zika was like a, it was a real thing. I mean, Zika was a real thing in mosquitoes um, as a as a you know a, a human virus that got tra- transmitted by the mosquitoes to the humans. But it was like a flash in the pan thing. It didn't last very long. Yeah, but they're still having to deal with. Chikagunda disease, which is a, a really nasty disease that humans can get from from uh, uh, 80s Egypti virus uh, uh, mosquitoes, and they use this the sterility of these male mosquitoes as a means to crash the population. And we, you know, the weed science people have theorized, you know, if we can just come up with the right genetic manipulation of water hemp or palmer we could just crash the population of these things. Um, but isn't maybe somewhat related, but isn't, hasn't in the European union, like CRISPR run into a lot of resistance as far as regulation and things like that as well. Yeah. CRISPR is an interesting, um, tool. So you have a, you have a genetic sequence in a pest or a plant or an animal. And instead of creating a new transformation or a new, genetic entity, you shut off certain genes, and that's what they call CRISPR. You don't create anything new, you just shut off certain genes. And when you do that, then you can manipulate the biological entity. And you're doing it with some pretty amazing precision, too. You know exactly where to do it. Right. In the the DNA Uh, strand. Right. Y'all have eaten apples. The apples get old. What happens to the apples? They get mushy. They get yeah, ethylene. It it breaks it down. Yeah, right. Um, in Washington State, they have developed CRISPR modified apples that never That's rot. A, as long as you keep them cool, they don't rot. That was a big part of food waste. You cut. <laughs> right. You got you kids, deal. and you cut up apples, and you got you open up your lunchbox that day, and your apples brown there's a good chance that Apple's going to hit the garbage can. Right. Well, that was, uh, I, it's related and unrelated to this, is think about the flavor saver tomato. Right. I mean, that, that was one that it yeah. reduced ethylene production. It was a GMO tomato to do that. And, and how many years did it, and it got shut down because of the, the negative stigma that came with GMOs as far as a, a very direct food product and, they ended up naturally breeding it in, but it took at least a decade longer to get to that same end result. Same thing occurred with golden rice and vitamin K. Right. Another great example. That, I don't know that these folks really know that whole golden, golden rice deal, but, but that's a big deal, really. That one is huge. There's been a big resistance. Was that came about by from Erie, IRI, the International Research? Yes. In the Philippines, is that where yes. it came? And and so they, they developed uh, the capability of increasing the level of vitamin K in rice uh, through genetic engineering. But because of a cloud of acceptance uh, prevailing over something that is genetically engineered, 
uh, it is take, it's taken years and years and years for it to be uh, in production and acceptance by consumers. Wow. Just just absolutely wild. It was certain groups that intervened and and brought these countries to their particular governments, saying mm-hmm. that GMOs are bad. This is bad for your overall health. When in reality, they were these were humanitarian efforts. It wasn't like these were GMOs brought for profit. This was GMOs brought for humanitarian reasons. This was, uh, you know, and it's not. It doesn't have to do just with GMOs. So Jason mentioned this earlier. Maybe you, Kyle, mentioned it. Is is malaria? So malaria is a major disease of humans. Uh, it's really a big problem, especially in Africa, continental Africa. So how do you deal with malaria? There are a lot of different ways to deal with malaria, but one of the things that you do is, is you prevent the mosquitoes from transmitting the malaria parasite. So how do you do that? You kill the mosquitoes. So back in the 40s and 50s, and even into the 60s, the solution was, let's hit them with DDT, let's hit them with all the pesticides we could imagine, and just knock down the mosquito populations. And guess what happened? In North America, we eliminated malaria from the North American continent. We don't have it anymore because we had enough pesticides to take out all the malaria-bearing mosquitoes, but they couldn't do that in Africa because it's just too big of a problem. So what happened was, is they banned DDT, and they couldn't kill all the mosquitoes like they wanted to, so it just hung around and continues to be a problem in Africa. Well, guess what? The country of South Africa said, we don't need to kill the mosquitoes, we just need to repel the mosquitoes, and we know that low levels of DDT will repel them. So they have chalk, the stuff that you you know, the people use on old chalkboards that is laden with DDT. And they literally put a chalk line around the perimeter of these people's houses. And it doesn't kill the mosquitoes, but the mosquitoes don't like it. So they don't come into these houses and they don't bite the humans that sleep there. And guess what? Malaria crashed in places like South Africa. But holy buckets! They're still using DDT, and that's evil. I, I was just going to say, what's the PPE involved with having... Nothing, because <laughs> it's at a, such a low level that it's not toxic to humans. It's not even toxic to the mosquitoes. It just repels them. Hmm. And so you have other places like Kenya who listen to the European Union and the environmentalists, and they say... Well, we'll just give them more nets that are laden with pyrethroid insecticides to prevent the mosquitoes from attacking the humans that are sleeping at night. And it's like, but no one sleeps with the net on their head. The South Africans have already whipped this thing. Um, So DDT is not bad um, if it's used appropriately, but. Well, no different than you explained earlier about if it's a paraquat or, well, especially paraquat to that particular example. It gets very demonized that it's very poisonous. And, and yes, can it be if used in the wrong ways and exposed in the wrong ways? Absolutely. But if you're being very diligent about the PPE and keeping exposure to a minimum, it's very safe. And and I guess the... It's proven by the people that are volunteering to be, you know, followed on a regular basis to expose as far as like what their exposure is to, to disclose what that means. So, are we talking uh, pesticides or are we got are we talking about lutefisk now? <laughs> <laughs> so so okay, Jason, I know a little uh, bit goes a long way. That's why we, we're gonna you know, how do you keep your friends out of your house? Well, you just got a little bit of that around, and they don't, they don't come around. <laughs> so I really think the take-home message, though, I mean, we've been talking about pesticides, Jason, but, I mean, you have kids now. You Do you have grandkids, don't you, Jason? No? Yes, I have one, yeah. Okay, okay. So you have kids that are involved in production agriculture, presumably that are applying pesticides or using them, right? Uh, my son will be, yes. Uh, my my youngest is uh, 
probably going to work with a uh, soybean breeder at NDSU. So there'll right. probably be some, some type of things there. Yeah. My daughter was in retail. Yeah. So, so there's absolutely. Yep. The point I think the point I'm trying to make here is, is if you really were concerned about their welfare by doing those sorts of jobs, would you recommend that they do those things? I think not. Right. I mean, you, love your kids, you are excited about having grandkids, the last thing that you would want to do is have them do a job that put them at needless risk or risk for their kids or whatever, right? I mean, you just wouldn't do yeah. that. Um, both of my kids, my son at 19 years old went to work, Bass County Vector, he sprayed mosquitoes for six years. I was perfectly happy with them doing that because one, they ran a great shop. They were very safety conscious. I didn't think there was any risk. He paid for his entire college by doing that. My daughter needed a job. I mentioned it to Rich Solinger, our weed scientist at NDSU, and I said, hey, my daughter, you know, needs a job. Rich said, yeah, bring her on. You know, we'll hire her. She worked for, for Dr. Z for a couple of years. Do you think a pesticide specialist would ever encourage their children to do those sorts of tasks if we didn't think they were being safe, really. I mean, yeah. I mean, bottom line, if people take these things seriously, they can be used properly. If they don't, they want to be sloppy, they want to take them seriously, then run away. You know, I get that. But, um, you know, it's just just part and parcel is anything that you use in modern society, you could do a great job with it or you could just abuse it and bad things will happen. A couple things here, please. A couple things. We've talked about DDT a lot this evening. Do I recall correctly that the construction of the Panama Canal failed multiple times because of the poor control of mosquitoes and subsequent malaria? Absolutely. DDT came into the picture, controlled the mosquitoes, and the canal was able to be finished. Do I understand that correct? Actually, Larry, you're partly correct. DDT didn't come into existence until the 1940s, but they understood that the mosquitoes were killing the workers. And so they really started a really aggressive sanitation campaign to prevent the mosquitoes from reproducing. And if they did that, then the deaths of the workers on the Panama Canal would, would, would go down. And that's why the French and the British failed at the Panama Canals, because they didn't control the mosquitoes. They didn't use um, DDT, but they used sanitation. They used populate, or, uh, they manipulated the environment to, to drain the swamps and to, to empty out the water bottles. They even had an interesting situation where these nuns in the hospitals were putting these people's beds. People were dying of yellow fever from the mosquitoes were in beds. And what they did was is they had little bowls of water underneath the bed uh, legs, legs of the beds, because the, the bugs, the normal bugs in Panama would not crawl up the beds because they would drown in the water. But guess what? The mosquitoes thought that was a great place to lay their eggs. <laughs> and they laid their eggs in there, and the nuns were killing the patients with yellow fever because the mosquitoes found that to be a desirable place. The people in Panama, the uh, U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers, figured this out, and they had a campaign. They literally went out there, and if there was a bowl or any container that it could hold stagnant water, they paid people by the dollar to dump those things. Just by just by dumping the water, they, they crashed the mosquito population. Why, why didn't they just put three drops of uh, oil into that water? <laughs> they didn't know back in the day, Larry. This was 1900. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we probably bored you guys enough. Entomology trivia. When I'm doing bar trivia and this question comes up, man, I got it. I got oh, man. It. <laughs> I have got pages yes. of notes from you two tonight. It well, is amazing. Yeah, there is some great stuff here. And, and harass us. I mean, it, some of this stuff is just mind-boggling. We, 
you know, it's, uh, I, I had this phone call the other day from somebody who was like, oh, what do you make of this stuff, Andrew? It was like, sort of like this enlist thing with Bear, you know, what do you really think about this? And, and, and uh, they asked me, you know, I, I said, well, I don't have a legal degree, but I watch EPA all the time and I feel like I pass a bar exam. <laughs> <laughs> If I may have your permission, I'll share with you one particular point that I've shared from day one with society applicators and my master gardeners. I continue to do so. And then I'll refer to Dr. Bruce Ames of the University of California, Berkeley. His last name, Ames, is associated with the numerical scale of the Ames test for cancer. He has taken a look at pesticides for his whole life career. from him that says an individual consumes 10,000 times by weight of more of naturally occurring pesticides than they do of synthetic pesticides. Right. You're, I'm on target on that. Am I correct? Yes, you are. Yes. So the other, the other thing that's interesting, and, and I think Kyle and Jason, because of your age, you don't appreciate this as much as, as perhaps Larry and I do. When we were growing up, People died of heart attacks. People died of tuberculosis. People died of polio. They died of a lot of things, but they never really died that much of cancer because they never got that old. They died of maladies that we have been able to deal with. And so what has happened is, is that instead of somebody dying of a heart attack at 58, they live into their 70s and 80s and get caught, get cancer. And so we associate somehow the escalation of the amount of cancer out there as as because of all the pesticides we use or some other poisons in the environment. And really what has happened is, is that we continue to eliminate some of these disease problems that were really big deal in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. And we've done such a good job eliminating them that now the only thing left is the cancer. The other thing is, is not only are people not dying of some of these more pedestrian diseases and, and living into their 90s, but now inevitably you're starting to deal with people who are dealing with an escalation of Alzheimer's and dementia. You can't have Alzheimer's and dementia if you die young from a heart attack. And so people are living so much longer now and they're becoming subjected to these diseases that 30 years ago, it never would have happened. It never would have happened. People would have died of polio. They would have died of TB. They would have had a heart attack. My father had three heart surgeries. He lived till he's 94 years old. His mother never made it past 61 because she died of a heart attack. This is one of the reasons why we have our society is so tied up in knots on these things. Um, it just... On the one hand, we're so much better off now than we were before, but now we're so paranoid that we're going to die of cancer. Well, I'm concerned about it. You're concerned about it. I, got, I read a book. Uh, the book's called While the Windmill Watched, and it's two sisters that grew up in the 1950s in North Dakota yeah. on their farm. And they just talked about And there was one thing that just absolutely related to current times. And that is that they were so excited the day they got to go to school to get their vaccination for all the stuff you just listed right. because they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Right. And I'm, I'm reading this book during COVID and I'm like, holy shit. It was like, what? Because <laughs> you got part of the population that's not for it, part of the population that is for it. But they listed our stuff on in that book that – Nope, don't have to deal with this or that or this or that. There was nothing on there hardly, you know. There was polio, there was TB, there was, I mean, it was on down. It was like, she, I can't remember all of those. It was like six or seven things that we don't really have to deal with anymore. Right. I mean, that's the other thing that's so amazing, and, and you probably notice it in your kids too, is, is that they're, they're physically bigger, robust, more robust than you are. Um, why is that? They didn't have to deal with those diseases that you dealt with in your childhood. They reached their genetic potential 
because they don't have as many of these sorts of problems out there. And I, I almost feel like we obsess about some of these things with cancer and pesticides and, and other maladies out there um, when 30 years ago it would be no big deal. Nobody would make it that far. They'd have had a heart attack and died. You know, it's uh, one of the order to back up, double check something. I mentioned Bruce Ames. I'm looking at an abstract of a publication from the, from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences published in 1990. And in the abstract, it says, well, and Bruce Ames is one of the authors. We calculate that 99% by weight of the pesticides in the American diet are chemicals that plants produce to fend themselves. How about that? <laughs> that's, a, that's some food for thought right there. You, you yeah. look Bruce Ames sometime. Bruce Ames, Pesticides, University of California, and you'll come up with all fantastic good stuff. Dude, what was the that. name of that chap, Larry, that uh, I have his publication from University of California, Davis, toxicologist down there. My, my mind is going on this. He's a fantastic uh, food toxicologist. He was at the, some of those prep meetings back in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, my gosh. Now I feel terrible that I can't bring up his name. Um, he used to sing those parody songs of pesticides. You my jockey, your memory at all? He gave me one of his very first uh, CDs. His name is Carl Winter. Right. <laughs> Carl Winters. Great toxicologist. As a matter of fact, Kyle and Jason, I'm going to send you an email of a really nice paper that he wrote for CAST about a year and a half ago that really puts these pesticides and pesticide residues into context. And um, if I don't get that off to you, by the weekend, you you send me a note on Monday. I'll, and I'll remind send- you. Don't worry. I I have notes. <laughs> I wrote this Carl down. Carl Winters is a great, great humanitarian, great toxicologist, and he does a fantastic job putting all these pesticide residues and foods into perspective. And he does it in a manner, Kyle or Jason, that if you see your family member or your friends or other people in town giving you grief about the work that you do in the pesticide realm, you will be ready to make the argument. I like I'll it. take it. Yeah. Yes, I will take it. I have met him and had conversation with him. He attended as a guest speaker one time to an APCO annual meeting. Tell him what APCO is, Larry. Huh? Oh, APCO, uh, APCO, is. APCO is the um, Association of American Pesticide Control Officials. It's uh, it's all the state pesticide regulators and their national organization. And they interact directly with EPA. And I can I attended their annual meeting probably for, let's see, um, almost 30 consecutive years. Because I, I was able to go to that meeting and hear um, something from the EPA straight from the horse's mouth and uh, work with the uh, um, pesticide state regulators and see that side of it. And I was putting it to work in the education side. Mm. Wow. That's a long time. He has some great songs. He makes up lyrics <clears throat> to popular songs and, uh, <laughs> about, uh, looking at right now, one that, uh, to food safety music is a title of something that he's out there on. It's, it's good stuff. Carl winter. This sounds like something Jason would be into. Absolutely. I, <laughs> just, my, as soon as you started explaining this, I'm like thinking, yeah. I'm writing this stuff down. I'm like, Jason would be immediately oh. into this. Yeah. I, I did, um, in my past life, I might have or might not have done some things like this. I'll send you these current winter's publications. And when you post your uh, agronomy happy hour podcast, you can also post the PDF files. Yes, perfect. Yes, I, I really that would be perfect. If you're, if you're a if you're a practitioner, user of pesticides, you need to be able to understand how to make the arguments in terms of what's safe, what's not safe, what's real, what's what's not real to, to really sort through the chaff. And if you can do that and have some really down-to-earth explanations, Carl does that, and it'll help you a lot. Well, I'll give you a shortcut, gentlemen. Go to YouTube and search for Carl Winter, and you'll be amazed at some of the YouTubes that you will see him singing um, oh about pesticides and food. Air riot. 
They are right. <laughs> I can't wait. I will yeah. be searching this. Larry, you dig that stuff up. I'll make sure these guys get that if you send me a couple links, okay? <laughs> well, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to do your work now. <laughs> you see how that delegation happened right there? <laughs> yeah, I missed you, dude. You know, this has been fantastic. You know, Larry and I, we like, this is what we do, right? I mean, all we do is pesticides, right? And I, I think um, the best, best thing in this whole thing is that I mean, if you listen to this episode, you can feel that passion about what you do. And I, and I you know, I'm just going to, when I was in retail and all this kind of stuff, it's like when you had to go re- get recertified and, and all that type of stuff, it was probably the, you know, the least fun thing that you did. You, you had to go through it. You knew you had to do it. But now you're right. When you're talking about my kids and my grandkids, Right. You can't just start now. You have to have started back in the day. It's important. And mm-hmm. so that's what I really like was your guys is like, all the stories you told, just remembering some of the stuff and then naming dates. You know, like, that was, <laughs> so that was awesome. the other thing that's interesting and, and, and I think we, we should at least acknowledge this is like when Larry and I started out in the pest side realm, we were really bad. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, we were, really bad and i go back and i look at some of the stuff that i did 20 years ago when i was you know teaching people like you guys right and i'm like so embarrassed i'm like i can't believe i said that but you know over time you become more educated you know more about it you work with your applicators they um you know, it, it, you guys are just not cattle, right? You guys are like an important part of agriculture. And so if we do our jobs, you do your jobs well, everybody, you know, wins, right? <laughs> I think keep, that... Keep that up there, Larry. Do that one more time. I need a picture. <laughs> so, so like, over time, we get better at this stuff, you know? Um, I had a guy today, I, I kid you not, Jason... Send me a, a direct message on Twitter. He was at a training in Devil's Lake. He asked a very specific question about what he heard at that training. I sent a couple of other DMs to other people on Twitter that I knew who could answer the question for me. I got back to him. He was at the training at the same time that I was going back and forth on these questions. And they were great questions. And it was like, why am I doing this? Because you asked, because this was important to you, because this is my job. And I just feel like, and and Larry, you've looked at this for a long time. The people that are doing this pesticide certification training that have been doing it like you and I have over the years, we're serious about it. I mean, we don't, we don't, we want to do a good job, right? These people aren't cattle. If you wanted to catch their attention, I told them a story about an Iowa farmer in the days where he was buying a granular uh, corn rootworm insecticide. I don't remember if it was Fearden or, mm-hmm. or Counter. I don't remember which one it was. Both of them. And yes, and uh, he he was buying them in, in individual sacks. Okay, put them in the back of the straight truck. He brought them home from the dealer and he backed up to the machine shed and he started unloading them a sack at a time. Uh, a cloud came up and um, it's sprinkled in the light shower. He hurried to get the job done. Uh, it was a bit wet. Uh, he broke a bag and that bag went down onto his leather shoe that was wet from the rainfall. He continued working and that insecticide uh, was absorbed into the leather. Yep. He, he died of cancer three years later. Yep. Because he put, he went into the house. He knew it was on him. He went into the house. He washed. He cleaned. He changed clothes. But for the rest of the entire year, he wore the same leather shoes. Yeah, one of my one of my first uh, first job I had was working with Central Crop Consulting in uh, Stearns County, Minnesota. And uh, at that time, there was a lot of uh, there was no BT corn. And they're probably one of the more popular products that I remember at the time was either permethrin or yep. if we sprayed alfalfa, it was dimethylate. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember stopping at a, a farm. Uh, his name was Greg Jans. 
and I uh, had three fields of alfalfa for him to spray. And I parked in an approach of a field that wasn't to be sprayed. So I walked out into that field and I found out really quickly that it had been sprayed. Oh. And it was uh, with dimethoate and it must have been that morning. And I got in the truck and I was immediately dizzy. I drove back to Painesville, got in the shower and just showered. Um, and I was done the rest of the day. I laid in bed mm. and just tried to keep hydrated and that type of thing. But yeah, it was uh, something where we had to really have a lot of communication about what was going on. And I think when I started, they talked about how uh, somebody walked out into a cornfield to check for corn borer, not knowing that it had been sprayed with an insecticide. And it was wet, just like you said, Larry. And they had taken it in. And that, that person did not make it out. Uh, they made it out of the field, but they did not make it to the hospital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you interestingly enough, uh, Jason, my son, uh, you know, was doing uh, mosquito control work for six years for Cass County Vector. So he, you know, he's the son of a pesticide specialist, right? I mean, we, we like talk about this stuff, okay? This is important to me. He knows what he needs to do to keep himself safe. In his sixth year, it's in the middle of August, it's almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit, very low humidity. He's out there with a backpack sprayer of permethrin, fogging a baseball diamond in Fargo. And he has a malfunction on that device, and he gets permethrin all over his backside and down on his pants. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's the son of a pesticide applicator training specialist and he has that level of exposure and what does he do he is under heat stress he's not thinking right and all he wants to do is just get the job done and get home and he guts it out for two more hours with that stuff all over his pants and his back so even though people have the best of intentions sometimes things happen that we can't really account for and we have to acknowledge that even if we do the very best job, there's a certain element of risk associated with it, right? Um, so we do the best we can. Um, and even though my son had a major pesticide exposure event, he was sick, he didn't feel real good, he's going to be just fine. But that wasn't a real good decision, but it wasn't because he was being stupid. It was because he was under heat stress. He couldn't think at that moment. So things happen. You know, hopefully we can all walk away from that stuff. And, right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, guys, it's, uh, my goodness, almost two hours of this stuff. I can't <laughs> I know. I was, I was going to say it just had time blew by. Right. Are you going to have to break this into three segments or something? I don't know. <laughs> At least two. <laughs> but That's this fine. is great. This is, this yeah, is absolutely just... wonderful. This is great information. So, so what was that, Larry? It's like, didn't you sign that agreement for $200 an hour on this deal? Oh, he's, he's, he's not the bad one. He's not the bad oh, one. You're the bad the one. He's getting, he's getting way more than you are. <laughs> the, only reason I, the only reason I signed that agreement because the pay was so good. <laughs> no, we're, we're happy to do it. You guys are uh, stand-up people, and you you really committed to, to – uh, really trying to elevate the profession. And uh, we're just grateful that you thought Larry and I had something interesting to say. <laughs> and we didn't even get into the, the wonderful, beautiful topic of, of the simple risk formula. Oh, my God. Oh, that's, uh, yeah. Andrew's scratching his head. I don't know we're prepared for this. <laughs> it's, just, it's just three words. It's just three words. And that's, it's, uh, yeah, exposure time toxicity. So that I present that on my screen uh, and a slide, and I'll use I'll change the size of my fonts to emphasize the two ways you can do that. Your risk associated with a pesticide is your exposure times the toxicity of it. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Mm -hmm. but to, and I can write the font of the word risk very very tiny, meaning I have low risk equals high toxicity and have a large font for the word toxicity times tiny font for the word exposure. So that if you have something that's highly toxic, 
but your exposure is very, very tiny, your risk is tiny. And then I reverse the fonts, but I have a large font of the word toxic, uh, uh, of risk on the screen, that in large font, and that risk equals something that is low in toxicity, and that's a small font for the word toxicity, but the exposure word is very large. Yeah, yeah. I show the opposite of that. I used to give my applicators a bad time. I said, you guys are out there, we're dealing with PPE and, and, and some potentially uh, products here that should be handled properly, but I bet you guys take not, say, just think nothing about it, about cleaning parts, metal parts with gasoline, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. I said, let's How about your exposure? But, yeah, <laughs> well, let's think about what you just did. Smoking cigarettes or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> dip of tobacco or yeah. um, a little plenty, bit. Plenty of exposure for some of those guys to that. Well, guys, I, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to pack it in because it's, it's, I have to train tomorrow. This is my third training this week and um, big week. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So we got, got we got in a free session. Yeah. <laughs> And then the blizzards on Monday, Tuesday. Oh, oh my Oh, no. Yeah. We haven't canceled anything, and tomorrow's going to be beautiful, and we're going to finish the whole week, and we won't have had to Excellent. cancel anything. But, oh. Good. Thanks. Thanks for doing that. Yes, and, thank and, you uh, so much. For, for all the things uh, you guys do, you have done, and you will be doing, even if it's in retirement, right? <laughs> I'm still doing it. I know. Yeah. That's, so that's what I mean. That's the passion. That's the that's what I like about people in ag. Is that right there? All right, guys. It was great, John, with you. Maybe, maybe in another year or two, if if we don't bore everybody to death, maybe you should like send us some topics and we'll like focus on it and and, and really drill down on those things. You know, we never do that. We just <laughs> we just open it up and off we go. <laughs> Andrew, you're going to be so busy lighting people on fire on Twitter, you won't have time for this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so hopefully you guys enjoyed that and, and enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed that conversation with Andrew and Larry because they have a lot to share and, and there's a lot up there in their heads and there's a lot of passion around pesticide and the safety behind that. So. Hopefully you gain something out of those stories. If there's one takeaway, I know something me and Jason talked about after, you know, doing this podcast is like, it makes you aware that you need to just do the things necessary. Make sure you minimize exposure. It's something that's, yeah, something that all of us in agriculture, you got two agronomists that work with a plot stuff or even helping stuff on a farm, you know, even simple things like adjuvants, you know, take things careful. But the one thing that I'm not going to have to worry about PPE is the beer. Mm. That is meant to be absorbed and enjoyed. <laughs> Quite readily, I might add. <laughs> yeah, 12 ounces at a time tonight. Yep, and as long as it's an IPA, it's an all right deal. Yeah, mine is. Hey, mine too. So uh, I guess yeah, I'll so I'll go first. Yeah, do that. Because I, I, I got an IPA and... Boy, you know, when I see this 6.7% ABV, I'm getting used to this. I think uh, I know that conversion. You know when you do enough agriculture math, you just start to remember numbers? When I see a 67 now, I'm like, yeah, that's like a 1.63 BLE value. I'm ding, starting ding, to remember ding. that. <laughs> so it's true. It is. Yeah, so I, I've got a Surly Furious IPA. Ooh. It's a kind of a classic. Yeah, I think. red can. Yeah, red red can and pretty easily identifiable. And it's not like your juicy IPA is definitely the more of the, uh, I don't know, your classic bitter IPA. Uh, or the piney and, yeah, mostly piney. That'd be the way to explain it. I don't I don't know the proper terms, but that's what I think of. It's a little different color. Yeah, darker beer. It's not yeah, like it's... it's not like your uh, juicies or hazies or... Some of your uh, other New England IPAs where they're like very, uh, they almost look like orange juice sometimes. Yeah. You know, they're so bright colored. This one's that, a lot darker. That beer just doesn't match up taste-wise to the color. It's it's very, that's one of the more unique ones that, I, that mm-hmm. I've had. But it's a good one. So that's what I'm having is Surly Furious. Uh, if you're an IPA person, which, you know, it's funny over time, uh, you know, as I get off on uh, Twitter DMs or Snapchats or Instagrams, and 
Every once in a while, someone goes, damn you, I'm drinking craft beer more now. <laughs> Just makes me smile. I was like, welcome to the club. Got to find something different all the time. And so if you're looking for something different and the IPAs have tickled your fancy, the Surly Furious is definitely a good one. Yeah, no doubt. It just so happens this evening that I also have a 6.7. Oh. Yeah. And it's somewhere. in a 12 ounce can, it look like. It is. So we are yes. we are dead on this evening. The math the is BLE. the same. <laughs> math is the same. Which is, has that ever happened before? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Nah, I don't think so. Yep. We're, <laughs> we're just going to go with the stars aligned tonight. Yep. So this is uh, Grand Forks. I went with the Rumbus guys. And uh, it's their Phantom. IPA. So it's a, it's a little different. It's kind of a, you can taste the citrus in it and it's not uh, as dark as yours by any means. It's kind of a lighter, it almost looks like you got a lager, but it's the, of course they always put a story on their cans, you know, uh, this is about ever present and lurking. The phantom of the opera house finally has his own beer because I believe that was Rumbus guys is in the movie theater. Yes. Former movie theater. I think so. I think so. So it's made to appease this mysterious man and talks about it being an IPA and on and on and on. And yeah, so that's uh, Rumbus Guys is a good place to go on uh, in Grand Forks. And uh, yeah, I just picked it up because I'm like, I think I've had this, but I don't remember having it. So I'll try it again. Glad I did. Really smooth, uh, kind of zip to it. Got a little citrus in it. You can tell there's citrus hops in it, but. Ooh, I like yeah. it. But it's not, it's not a hazy or anything. It's just a, Straight up IPA. Hmm. I could still go for a hazy right now, so I guess I know what my next beer pick will be. Yeah, they were. I went in tonight, picked up some stuff, and uh, they were kind of short. There was the selection was a little thin, so which has been odd. I mean, I, I don't know how many bars I've been to just stopping in, and uh, you can't steal two, still steal two. That was in October, now we're into March, and uh, yeah, there's just some of the tap beers you can't they can't get because of CO2 which is really odd uh, not craft beer places but just regular small town bars mm. you know ah that's a shame not to have tap beer yeah i know oh yeah that's good super good oh so it doesn't just affect the pesticide world and us in farming it affects your local bar yeah I guess it does have to work with more cans and bottles yeah, that is that is what it is so Anyways, without further ado, I think we'll close out this week, and we hope you enjoyed part two of the Pesticide Podcast experience with ourselves and Andrew and Larry. They've been a wealth of information and great to talk to. We hope you had just as much fun as we did. And just remember, tune in next week, and we'll have another good one for the Agronomist Happy Hour. So say cheers to that. Cheers. Please hold for a very important message. If you like and listen to this podcast, we have a couple favors to ask. If you'd subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review, that's the farthest right star, we'd be extremely grateful. And if you got any topic suggestions, write us a review or find us on our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh yeah, and one more thing, send beer. Yes, send beer. Thank you.